that uh, the present preacher does not have the power to raise the dead, uh, though I do have the power to preach long into the night. That is something I have. Uh, but the power to raise the dead, I do not. So I'm going to stick to 30 minutes, if possible, rather than long, long, long into the night. It is hot, though. And if you would like to take off your jacket, as I would like to do right now, and if you would like, if you get thirsty or uh, overly hot, we do have water in the back. Feel free to get up and grab some. That is allowed as we consider together the Word of God. The reason I picked this passage, and I, uh, it's, it's an odd passage to pick um, in sermon preaching, but the reason I picked this passage to talk about the nature of the sermon is because I want to recognize right up front that listening to a sermon is hard. It's hard for all sorts of reasons. It's hard because it's hot. It's hard because our minds wander. In, I mean, in this passage that we're given, it's hard because there's uh, flames, uh, you know, lots of candles, right? Luke is sort of making the point that Eutychus isn't a sinner here. He's just experiencing the normal kinds of hardships that any of us would experience in a situation like that. It's late, there's incense burning, he's relaxed, he's comfortable with his friends, and he falls out the window. Listening to a sermon is difficult. I, I know this because I have listened to many sermons. I know that there are a number of reasons why we get bored in sermons. Sometimes the speaker isn't very engaging. There have been times where I have been bored with my own sermon. It, it happens. And I want to recognize that up front, that this activity that we're engaged in right now is difficult, but important, even imperative, even necessary. As we consider the full teaching of Scripture about the nature of proclamation uh, and you've got a number of other verses that we'll look at in the page accompanying this one. If you consider the full weight of Scripture about what we're doing right now, you'll realize that listening, hearing the word proclaimed is a key component, a particularly blessed means by which Jesus Christ prepares us for glory. We need to listen well, and that takes training. You don't need to be trained to figure out how to watch TV, but we do need to train ourselves to be able to listen to sermons. It is important and difficult. So I've got a collection of questions to explore as we do this this morning. Uh, every, uh, they teach you in seminary that uh, the best sermons all have parallel points and they all start with the same letter. Uh, you are probably not used to hearing sermons like that because Eric and I almost never do that. But I thought since this is a sermon about sermons, I should uh, make all of my points start with the same letter. It's P. We're going to start with the place of the sermon. We're going to then look at the preacher of the sermon. Then we're going to consider the purpose and finally the power of sermons, of proclamation, the Word of God. First then, the place of the sermon. How does the sermon fit in the overall worship service. Why, do we, why don't we just arrive and just the preacher starts preaching? Or why do we have a sermon every week? Why is that an such an important component of our worship that it's there every week? 
how does the sermon fit within the worship service? Different churches, different traditions have different answers to that question. Actually, you could see the differences represented right here before us. In a Protestant a Presbyterian church, you find uh, what the pew is typically in the very middle. Because we believe, and we build this into the architecture of our churches, we believe that the Word of God is the center of worship. Other churches, the sacrament is the center. The table is front and center. And the Word of God is preached from the side, from a little side pulpit. And we don't need to get into the details of that debate, because uh, whether it's the Word or the sacrament, I think we could say that both Word and sacrament function as the the climax, the, culminate, the culmination of the service is word or uh, next week in the evening, word and sacrament. That functions as the center of worship, but I want you to hear that correctly. That doesn't mean it's the only important thing or even the most important thing we do. Some of you are sitting here and you love to sing. You love the music of the church. That's your favorite part of worship. And that is okay, that is good, that is good and right. Some of you are sitting here and in midst of the hymns, you uh, mostly just sit with your mouth closed, right? You don't sing at all. Uh, that's probably not good and right, but nevertheless, uh, for some of us, song is not uh, as pleasurable as the other components of worship. So what I'm, say, what, I, what I'm not saying is that the preaching of the word is the most important or you're supposed to like that the most. Think of it, think of worship as a five course meal. The culmination of if you've ever sat down at a five course meal or a four course, you know, a meal with multiple courses, you know that the culmination is the main entree, right? But that might not be the biggest or most filling or even the thing that you like the most. And if this is planned for you, if you go to a restaurant and the, the chef just uh, serves a five-course meal, they've planned it, right? They've organized it. And they've organized it in such a way that each course is supposed to lead you to the next. It's supposed to guide you to the climax, to the end, to the, to the telos, the main uh, entree of the meal. And they all fit together in a kind of way. That, uh, all analogies break down, but that is a rough way to think about worship. The singing, the confessing, the call, all of these things are designed to guide us to the sermon. They fit together. They have a cohesion. And the cohesion is then expressed, finally and ultimately, in the uh, word and sacrament, in the culminating point of the service. So practically, how does that impact you? Uh, start, to, start to look for the cohesion of an overall sermon, uh, of an overall service. Everything is designed to guide you to that point. The, the hymns that we sang, even today, are designed to get us ready, to prepare us to hear Christ speak. And that is a part of our weekly rhythm. We engage in all of these elements of worship. You know, in our family... Uh, we have a split. Some of us are appetizer people and some of us are dessert people. Some of us like the appetizer more, some of us like the dessert more. That is an okay variance in the people of God, right? Some of you might be appetizer people. You love the songs, you love to confess your faith. You love it that we do the Apostles' Creed week by week. Some of you are dessert people. You love 
that final culminating hymn of response. You love the end of the service and to receive, and I see some people holding out their hands, to receive the benediction from Jesus Christ. But at the center of it all is the sermon, and it's the sermon and the sacrament that give the service its cohesion because it's in that moment where we most particularly encounter the word, the proclamation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The place, then, of the sermon. What about the preacher? What gives me the right to stand and occupy the next 30 minutes of your life? What makes me special? Well, uh, even Paul, who we could say is special, said uh, when he's talking about pastoral ministry, when he's talking about preaching and proclamation, he gives this long list of qualifications. And then he says, who is sufficient for these things? No one. There's no one special enough. There's no one good enough. There's no one gifted enough to, to do this in the way that God calls us to do it. You are hearing a weak, broken sinner preach to you from God's word. There's nothing particularly special about me or about Eric. And yet, there is something special about the office. The office of elder, the office of uh, teacher. Uh, I, I've actually printed the wrong verse in the bulletin for this. I printed the 2 Thessalonians, but if you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, uh, verse 13, we're told this by Paul. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you, Thessalonians, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. You see what, how Paul talks about himself and the proclamation that he delivers it. It is both his words, but there's a big, bigger, more fundamental, more basic reality going on here. I say this with great fear and trembling. I promise you that this scares me more than it scares you. When a preacher preaches the word of God, they are preaching the very word of Christ. They are standing in the position of Christ and proclaiming his word. It is word of God. But Paul, Paul's special. Paul's an apostle, right? Now, surely this is, applies to Paul, not other preachers. Well, if you look um, 1 Peter 4, which is printed for you in the bulletin, Peter says this. He talks about whoever speaks. Everyone has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. But whoever speaks, you speak as one who speaks oracles of God. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever. And ever, whoever speaks the word of God, receive it as the oracles of God. You parents, when you are commanding your children, when you are instructing them in the word, Sunday school's teachers, when you are instructing the children that we give to you in the word, you are speaking for God in that moment. It's their duty to receive those things as oracles from God. If they are consistent with the word of God, they should be received as such, as word from God. Not just my advice, not just the things I want to say, not my soapbox. No preachers are always guilty of standing on their own personal soapboxes. But this is what God has for us. 
it is truly a dangerous thing to speak the Word of God. And for this reason, James 3 says teachers will be judged more harshly, more strictly by what they teach and what they say. This is a high calling, but it is the manner by which we approach the preaching of the Word. This is not pious advice. We are to receive it as a word from God. If I abuse that privilege and give you my own personal opinions about Social Security or health care, that's a problem, and you should rebuke me for it. You should, you should pull out uh, Acts 17, also printed for you in the bulletin. You should say, look, Tommy, Eric, whoever it is preaching the words of God. Now, the, these Jews in uh, uh, Thessalonica, they were more noble, uh, excuse me, they, these Jews were more noble, these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They received Paul's preaching critically. That is, they asked questions about it. They had their doubts. They wanted to understand it more fully. They wanted to understand it better. And what did they do? They brought Paul's preaching and they tested it by the Word of God. They tested the Word of God in accordance with the Word of God. They received it as from God, but as from God, they expected it to be consistent with the other word from God that they heard. So they examined their scriptures to make sure that these things were so. You, you should do that with your preachers. There's a twofold attitude that we come to the, uh, to the preaching of the word with. On the one hand, we are humble and submissive. We receive it as we would receive a word from God himself. On the other hand, we test the spirits. And we test them not by our own ideas, not by our own philosophy, not by the wisdom of the age, but again, by the word of God, once and for all delivered to the saints. And if I say something wrong, if I say something that sounds off and you're wondering about it, ask me. That's not being belligerent, that's not being difficult, it's not being a problem. You should ask good questions. It's an appropriate response to the word of God to say, show me in scripture how these things are so. place, the preacher, most importantly perhaps though, the point, what is a sermon? Sermons aren't like other things, right? Like we experience sermons differently than we experience other things. What, what makes a sermon a sermon? Is a sermon a kind of pep talk like a coach would give before a game? Go out there in the course of the week and be Christ to others. Is it a pep talk that's designed to get you to do certain kinds of things? Is it more like a TED talk? You know, one part entertainment, one part information, slight agenda that's pretty clear throughout. What is a sermon? A motivational speech? Is it just information I'm supposed to digest? What makes a sermon unique? What makes it a sermon? Because it's different than the other kinds of discourses and speeches that we're engaged in hearing. It's, it's different than a political rally. It's different than the motivational speech. It's different than the TED Talk. What makes it different? 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What are we doing in a sermon? What is a sermon? A sermon is the proclamation of Christ. That may sound obvious, but if you really consider it, it should reshape what you're looking to get out of a sermon. If you come here and you're looking for 15 practical points, life hacks that you can immediately, so you can, you know, uh, peel a cucumber more easily. If you're looking for that kind of information, things to get along with life, how to deal with the internet, how to educate my kids, what's the right way? You're looking for different kind of components to help me with life, a kind of life coach. Then you're actually, we do those kinds of things in sermons. But that's not the main point. The main point of the sermon is outside of us altogether. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the church. The sermon is about Jesus Christ. Hopefully every sermon that you hear proclaimed to you centers on the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The sermon is a proclamation. That is, it's an announcement. Christ has come, therefore live differently. It's the call that we saw in Deuteronomy. It is a weighty call. It is a heavy call. In fact, it's so heavy, it's so weighty to hear the word of God that Peter in 2 Peter says it would be better to not hear it at all than to hear it and respond uh, antagonistically to it. It is a weighty thing that's happening when Christ is proclaimed. But that is what the sermon is. It is the proclamation, the announcement of that an event has taken place. Christ has come. He sits enthroned in his kingdom. He is a glorious king who will judge the heavens and the earth. He has been given the right to rule over all things. And for this present moment, there is a window at which he will receive any who come to him in faith. It is an announcement, a proclamation. And so a sermon is about Christ. It's for you, but it is about Christ. It's not about our lives. It's not life hacks. It's a proclamation of the lordship of Christ and the appropriate way for us to respond to that lordship. Christ has come. And that central proclamation is embedded even in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, I was once asked, where's the gospel in the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed is the gospel. It is an announcement that the event of Christ's reign and rule has taken place, and there is a window of invitation to be a part of it, to come into Christ's kingdom and to live as such. That is what every sermon, in all of the variety of sermons that we hear in our lives, that's what every sermon should be about. Christ, crucified, risen, ruling over heaven and over earth. So what should you do in a sermon? How should you listen to a sermon? Listen for Christ. How is he being proclaimed in this text? How is he being proclaimed from Scripture? Look at him. The sermon is designed in verbal form to display Christ to us. In the same way that the sacrament is designed in physical form to display Christ to us. The one verbal, the other physical, both uh, received 
in the power of the Spirit and through the power of the Spirit by faith. And yet both of them, what they do is they display Christ to us. And the goal every time we come is to enter in, to draw near to the very presence of the ruling Christ to see him in all his glory. Finally, then, we can ask about the effect of the sermon, the power behind the Word of God. What impact should it have on my life? What impact can I expect? You see, it, it's a proclamation. The sermon is a proclamation, but it's a proclamation that's kind of unlike other proclamations, or at least a lot of the ones that we hear. It's, it's more than a press release. Okay, when the president you know, releases, a, he makes a proclamation, henceforth we are going to do this as a country or that as a country. It may or may not have an uh, impact on your daily life. The sermon is a proclamation, but every time it's proclaimed, it should have an impact on who we are and on what we do. It has immediate impact in our life. It has power to change. It's a proclamation and it attended with it because it's attended by the Spirit of God, because it's attended by Christ Himself. It is a proclamation that has power to change who we are from the inside out. And it's our job to listen to it as such, to receive this as, this is for me. It's about Christ, but it's for me. And I must apply it to myself. I must see how this word from God applies to me and to my situation. And that, I'm sorry to say, takes work. Work on my part, work on your part. Maybe you've uh, uh, been faced with this question either as a, as a kid or as a parent. Like, what is the point? What is the point of math? Why am I learning my multiplication tables? I see, I see a certain one whom I love nodding. What, what is the point of this, right? And we as adults, we know what the point of it is, taxes. <laughs> we know that it has applicable areas in our life, right? We know that we need this to figure out who won the game and how much we need to pay. And, but when you're learning it, you don't always see what the point is, the change, the, the impact that it should have on your life. Now, what a good teacher will do is they will along the way say, look, and you could use this to solve this kind of problem. So when we were doing addition as a family, one of the biggest uh, payoffs was finding out who won Ticket to Ride, who won our, our favorite family board game, who, who got the most points. And so there is a vested interest in doing good addition. Uh, and we use that to kind of say there's a point to this, there's a, there's a goal that we're moving to. And what a good preacher will do is kind of show, okay, here are some areas where this should have an impact on your life. But there's always more to be done. Every week, I'll confess to you, every week, Eric and I are in this tension of how specific do we get. See, we want to be specific. I want to say things like, kids, this is how this might apply to you. Parents, this is how it applies to you. Singles, uh, each of us is in a different kind of stage in life. Sunday school teachers, different roles that we serve in the kingdom of God. And it applies to each of us differently. There are multiplicity, infinite applications of this text to 
our lives. I just don't know where everybody is, and I don't know how specific to be, because as soon as I get specific, as soon as I say, kids, here's the point for you, you parents turn your brains off. Oh, finally, he's talking to the kids. I don't have to deal with this. This is for them. It's not for me. But actually what we're doing when we're doing that is giving you kind of a range of applications. And it's designed to get you to think, okay, well, uh, that's how it applies to me. How, how, that's how it applies to my kids. How might the same principles work in my life? I mean, I'm not a preacher, so I don't have to worry about all the things that Paul says to preachers. But you know what? I am a teacher. I actually do have a shepherding role in the life of my family. I'm a boss. And as a, as a boss at work, I, I'm a servant to other people. So this this sermon about how we serve others, this applies to me as a boss. It applies to me as a parent. It applies to me as an older brother. I can't do that every week. I can't list out every stage, and you don't want me to, list out every stage, every, every uh, person, every possible range with which this passage might be applicable. That, it, you, as uh, we together, as the people of God, are required to do that. To think through, how does this apply to me? Okay, he didn't mention me, specifically. He didn't, his application didn't hit me right on the head. Didn't, it didn't fit where I am. But we're not done yet. Now it's time to take up the word of God, having, having been proclaimed to you, and to say, how, how then does this apply to my life? How does it apply to my situation? Three, uh, three things, okay, uh, as we're kind of c closing up shop here. Three uh, uh, spheres that should be affected by any sermon. Your mind, your heart, and your will, okay? If you're thinking about what impact should this sermon have, it should change the way you think, it should change what you love, and it should change how you act. Now, some sermons are going to focus more on one or the other. You know, you're at a Presbyterian church, so you're going to find a lot of focus on the mind. Some sermons are going to affect your heart and your will more. But each sermon should do all three. It should change the way you think, it should change what you love, and it should change how you act. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to hit each one of those briefly. It should change the way you think. In Romans, it should be a mental, an intellectual thing should be happening as you're hearing the Word of God. In Romans, Paul actually calls everything that we might consider growing in Jesus Christ, conforming your minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How do I be transformed? by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, that by, by your critical faculties, by your reason and your reasonableness, you should discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the reasons why we focus often on doctrine, one of the reasons why often we will confess something from the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg or something that's very propositional in character, one of the reasons for that is because we believe that our minds are distorted, our minds are uh, overshadowed by folly. And what we need is to transform our minds, to bring them in conformity with the mind of Christ. May the mind of Christ be in you, Paul says. We want to think Christ's thoughts after him.
Now that's sometimes difficult when we uh, have, you know, uh, when we're talking about general relativity or uh, modern philosophy or something like that, it's hard because Jesus Christ didn't live in the area of, in, in, the, in an era of general relativity or modern philosophy. So it takes work on our part. But what we're doing is we're looking at the Word of God and we're saying, how should my thinking change as a result of this? And it might not be immediately practical to you. It might be two weeks, four weeks, ten weeks down the road when suddenly you need that math that you learned. All, that, all those sermons on suffering, and I've got a pretty good life. It doesn't apply to me. You will suffer. It is a promise that Jesus gives. No one is above the master. You will suffer. You will need that someday, and you will be kicking yourself that you weren't listening. What do I do in that time of suffering? Let it conform. Let the word conform our minds. It should affect our hearts. It portrays Christ to us, and the net effect should be every week we love Christ a little more. I like children who are growing. We often don't see how we're growing. We also don't seem any taller today. But every week, over the net course of preaching, we should love Christ more. We should see more of Him, and in seeing more of Him, value Him more, love Him more. Love that, th that thing that we thought was really difficult to understand. When Christ said those words to us five years ago, we thought, wow, that, that is hard. Those are hard words. I wish Christ was a little nicer. But then five years later, we learned we needed that. And we love Christ all the more as a result of it. We should have our hearts inflamed by the word of God. Finally, our wills. James tells us, don't just hear the word and then go about your business. Hear the word in order to obey it, to do it. And again, if Christ is the center, the goal here is to become an imitator of Christ, to love Christ more, to have the mind of Christ, to love him more, and now to imitate him. How did Christ endure suffering? Well, Peter says, in the same manner of thinking, so you endure it. Go and you have a model, you have a guide, you have a shepherd. Do as he did. Take up your cross and follow him. We should be thinking, we should be asking each other on the way home from church, at home fellowship groups, uh, prayer meetings, after church in the back when we're trying to avoid kids running around. We should be, we should be talking to each other about how does this apply to my life? Really dangerous question? Ask somebody who loves you. They've got to love you, by the way. Do not ask this question to somebody who does not love you. Ask somebody who loves you, how do you think the sermon applies to me? You'll get interesting responses. We do this as a community. It's one of the reasons why we don't just release a podcast each week that you then listen to privately in your own homes. We do this as a community, as a local community who know and love and have made vows to one another, to care for one another, to love one another truly. We do it as the people of God, surrounding the word, together, asking each other, how should this change the way I live? And there's great promise attached. In the front of your bulletin, 1 Peter, we'll close with this. As we do this, it is hard work. It is difficult work. Our minds 
Our bodies, our wills resist doing this. We are most likely to get tired and frustrated and not want to listen when somebody is speaking the word of God to us. Okay? Every part of us resists this, but doing that work and engaging in this, listening well, hearing with ears to hear, hear the promises attached to it. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again by the word. The word has given you birth into a new kind of life, an imperishable kind of life. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Paul, Peter uses that verse not to talk about the word, but the effect of the word in you. The word results in imperishable life, eternal flourishing, permanent and perfect inheritance in the heaven of, heavens of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I don't claim to preach good sermons. Eric doesn't either. We know that one of the burdens that you have is imperfect preachers. But this is our goal every week. And it's, it's our goal gathered together around the word to receive that which results in imperishable life. The word does that. You receive it by preaching, by reading, by praying through it. But the word, its net effect is not to return void, but to return with an imperishable inheritance kept for you, guarded in heaven. Let us together attend to the word of God because it and it alone has the power to bring about imperishable life in our lives.